This program is supported by Altus Learn. Did you know that 89% of employees say, if my employer invested in my training, I'm more likely to stay with the organization long-term? An Altus Learn Imaging Campus has the required education for imaging centers to meet annual ACR, IAC, and Joint Commission requirements for radiation and MRI safety and CT dose reduction. An imaging campus not only provides the annual required education, but also provides the imaging center techs with access to over 200 CEs, which are accepted by the ARRT. Including CEs published on the RADCAST podcast, imaging technologists can track all of their CEs through the CE wallet, and imaging center leaders can check the compliance status of each of its team members. Learn more at the bottom of RADCAST.com and click on Get a Campus. So hello and welcome to this episode of Turner Talks. Today we're going to be talking about AI in um, the radiation sciences. So whether that's in reading CAT scans or reading radiographs or in treatment planning for radiation therapy. Um, we've got two experts with us today. One, Dr. Steve Getch and then um, Melanie Zacharias. From um, They're both from, from the West Coast, so we're on different time zones and in, in different situations here. So, Melanie, if you'll just give us a little bit of your background and tell us what you're doing now, and then we'll let Dr. Getch introduce himself as well. Okay. Hi, everyone. Uh, I am on, in the Pacific Northwest right now. I started in radiation therapy, so I'm an RTT, so I have that background, and then also worked uh, probably about 20 years or so in dosimetry and treatment planning, and now I'm doing more of the education piece of things as far as um, teaching dosimetry students, teaching therapy students, so um, that's kind of where I am right now and a little bit about my background. And you, Dr. Getch. Okay, I'm Steve Getch. I'm a medical physicist a PhD in medical physics, University of Wisconsin. Uh, worked at Wisconsin for a while, then UCLA in the last you know, 25 years now here in uh, San Diego at Scripps Memorial Hospital. Uh, I've taught many places like uh, Cal State Long Beach and San Diego State, most recently uh, John Patrick University, which is mostly online. Now I'm also teaching a little bit at National University, a local university here in San Diego. So that's me. Well, excellent. Okay, we're going to move into talking about today's topic, which is artificial intelligence, um, and specifically to the radiation sciences. But Dr. Getch, you've provided me with a really, really interesting history of kind of some of the developments that were made for, for some of this quantifying or looking at um, different ways numbers could be used um, in science. So if you don't mind to give us a really good overview of some of that historical, some of those developments, some of those uh, medical things that were used or, or you know made possible early on. I think if you go back to what we all study in plane and solid geometry, get people like Euclid who just simply sat and thought about things. Uh, thing I ever heard of Euclid doing was filling up a cone with sand so he could figure out what the volume was. He couldn't rationally figure it out. Mostly they just simply thought about things carefully, but they were also fascinated by the, the stars and astronomy. And I think that led to some of the earliest ideas for devices. There was a fascinating device found at the bottom of the Aegean Sea with a bunch of amphora that was able to date it going back probably 100 BC or so, it's called the Antikythera device. It astonished people once they figured it out because it was incredibly highly machined using technology no one imagined they had in those days. And it was a calculating device to predict things like eclipses and the rising and setting of the stars and the moon. So that was probably the earliest computational device I can think of. And you go on after that, um, in ancient times also in the Middle East and probably in China was the abacus. And I used to have one as a kid and at one point I could sort of I'd figure out what to do with all those beads and how to add and subtract and do things like that. But it was one step up above counting on your fingers. And I think that uh, that was helpful. It gave an idea to what was going on. And mathematical concepts, the, uh, the Arabs during the Middle Ages developed things like the concept of the number zero that zero is a number turned out to be life and death because computers are all zeros and ones. Without zeros, there wouldn't be computers. And again, more astronomical devices, uh, 
navigation it became very important to have accurate clocks so you could study longitude and would not run into hidden rocks someplace that was a very difficult thing to do and as it went on into the into the uh, 1600s logarithms were invented that gave rise to something called the slide rule i'm the last generation to buy a slide rule engineers and scientists had slide rules you could slide these things around got one sitting in my desk next door i should pick up for you it gave you a quicker way to do calculations than doing them sort of by hand but people imagined things that were much more exciting i think the the next one that was really interesting was the programmable loom a guy named Jacquard, Joseph Marie Jacquard, figured out a way to get looms to, to be instructed with punch cards so they could do very elaborate patterns, including a picture of himself. It's amazing how clever they were and how they immediately predated the idea of the digital computer. There's Charles Babbage, <clears throat> Charles Babbage in England in the 1800s came up with a brilliant idea for a digital computer and even tried to build a couple of them. But he was about 50 to 100 years ahead of the technology at the time. He just couldn't quite get it to work. So that's sort of where it stayed until we got into the 19th century. And after that, it started to develop much more rapidly. Um, one of the things that happened, I think, was Herman Hollerith, a mathematician and a statistician. Uh, he bid on doing the, the 1890 United States Census. Every 10 years, we have to do the census. The 1880 census, they gathered by paper, but it took them seven years to tabulate it. By the time they got the answers back, it was like too late. Well, he had an idea for the 1890 census, having these uh, paper punches, very similar to the Jacquard loom. And he managed to get it done in two and a half years, which is a big help. Well, Ever since that time, the census is done very rapidly using electronic technology. So that that was a really uh, a huge breakthrough. The idea that you would have what they called punch card machines, which did some primitive sorting and calculating. Of course, the rise of banking led to the rise of gigantic check clearing houses. Uh, at one point in England and London, they had room with a thousand different accountants all trading checks back and forth. At the end of the day, reconciling banks. People didn't think that was such a good idea. So there was tremendous demand built up in modern society. It's very, very dependent on money and, and exchanging money. People needed a better way to do that. I think the real revolution that, that came about was World War II. Uh, World War II was sort of a technology war. Yes, there were huge armies going back and forth and ordinary devices like, <clears throat> excuse me, like airplanes and, and artillery pieces and tanks. There was also a technology war. Uh, British figured out a way to crack the most top secret code that the Germans had. The Germans didn't know it. They protected it very carefully, tried not to let the Germans know this, but it led to the rise of an enormous need for, for computation on a real-time basis, which was another aspect. And people like Alan Turing is one of the greatest mathematicians in history, began to come up with devices, first electromechanical and then programmable, that literally were digital computers. The United States had a couple of them also, uh, did things like calculate trajectories for artillery shells. But by 1950, the modern digital computer was here. So that's when things really got started. So you mentioned um, Turing and him building that mega supercomputer that eventually broke was, you know, to break down the Enigma code in World War II. Um, also, you've talked about um, the hidden figures, the <laughs> women behind some of the aerospace, behind some of that exploration. Um, can you speak a little bit about some of these people as they entered into this computing, this computational world to kind of help solve problems for people? But it was actually, it was, there were, these were the actual people that were developing these things. Well, it's interesting that now to us, a computer is something that sits on your desk or it's a laptop. But up until about 1950, 1955, a computer was a human. It was a job description, like accountant or doctor or lawyer. Uh, 
Jim Watson, the chairman of the board of IBM, was very much resistant to the idea of calling these amazing new devices computers. Computers were not only were they people, most of them were women. It's like, why do we want to call our state-of-the-art thing a computer? It doesn't make any sense. If you go back to the turn of the century, uh, Professor Alan Pickering at Harvard University hired a bunch of women. There were so many in his uh, astronomy department at Harvard that they called it his harem. And they were just simply supposed to stare at glass photographic plates and very meaningly write down things like estimate the magnitude of stars. But as a Broadway play later described it, a lot of these women had a different agenda. They were scientists too. Some of them had master's degrees from distinguished universities. They weren't allowed to be professors, but they had brilliant insights. Some of the, the greatest insights in the early part of the 19th century, such as standard candle to determine how far away stars and nebula were, all came from these women. Uh, the most, most impressive thing you can say about it is at least four of the have craters on the moon named after them. I think that's incredibly cool. But it continued on NASA in the 1960s. There were really two uh, different streams of people. There was a group at, uh, at MIT that was had computers there and they were trying to calculate lunar orbits. And the main person that did that was a young woman who was in her 20s. There were pictures of her standing next to a computer output that's taller than she was. Then the other group that came out in the movie, Hidden Figures, was women, mostly black women, who backed up the, the electronic computers with hand calculations pretty much in real time. They were also vital to the, to the uh, Man and Space Program and the Apollo Moon Landing Program. In fact, one of them just passed away, uh, it was Katherine Johnson, passed away earlier this year at the age of 100. NASA eventually recognized her by naming a computational building after her. So they were very important in this whole program. So let's move towards where we are today now. Um, and I know in my lifetime how much computers have changed. I know my kids, you know, look at the look at if my husband keeps everything. So we have a basement full of, you know, giant towers and and monitors and, and whatnot. But so just the way things have changed, how did we get from those rooms that had, you know, they were just rows and rows and rows? How did we get from that to a laptop or even a phone that works, you know, in, in some ways kind of the same way? Well, this is one of the great technological revolutions of the 20th century. Uh, first thing that really came about in, around 1904 was a vacuum tube. That's very similar to the Crookes tube. We all know that story in 1895, this obscure German professor named Wilhelm Röntgen was working with this Crookes tube, which accelerated electrons. And he was playing with magnets and having a lot of fun with it. And all of a sudden this uh, barium platinum cyanide screen on the other side of the room started glowing and he accidentally discovered x-rays. Well, that led to the whole rise of diagnostic and later therapeutic radiology. In the meantime, those tubes were picked up by people like Nikola Tesla and, and uh, Marconi, and they found out they would make very good radios. So vacuum tubes were really critical. The computers that were built in World War II, like the ENIAC, and the EDVAC that uh, were built at um, University of Pennsylvania and MIT, respectively, those things were monstrous. They're the size of a modern house. Uh, they practically need their own power generating station. Um, so the vacuum tubes were you know, literally the size of a, of a watermelon. That was not very practical. The, the idea that one of those would be in somebody's house is ridiculous. But I think things went on. <clears throat> the, one of the breakthrough disruptive technologies was the invention by three American scientists at Bell Lab of the transistor all of a sudden, everything that this vacuum tube could do was suddenly shrunk down to the size of about your fingernail. It was this, these things called transistors. Literally everything a vacuum tube could do, a transistor could do, but faster, better, cheaper, and with less power. So that was an enormous leap forward, probably through several generations at the same time. That continued on, and the next step was the integrated circuit. Now, in some wizardly way, perhaps a thousand uh, transistors can be put onto a, a little 
plastic sheet that was one inch by one inch. And ever since that time, according to a rule of thumb called Moore's Law by a, by a uh, technological genius named John Moore's, the computing power doubles roughly every two years. And if you double and double and double and double and double, well, I think all of us now are familiar with what a virus does when it doubles very frequently. It suddenly explodes. That's what's happened. Computers have now gotten to be immensely fast, uh, extremely small, and very powerful all at the same time. This has made possible all sorts of uses of computers that were never imagined before. So Melanie, I want to ask some questions clinically now, um, because you and I have both been in the field for a little while. Um, do you know, I, I developed film in a dark room. I carried the heavy cassettes around. I worked in radiation therapy with cobalt where nothing was computerized. You just set things up and, you know, open the, open the source up. So if you could talk about maybe some things you've seen change, some more, I mean, because today everything is so digital, so computerized, but we did start in a place where it was just kind of set up and shoot sort of thing. So if you could talk about maybe a little bit of that clinical history, and then as we progressed, and then we'll get on into modern day, um, you know, uh, diagnosis and treatment. Sure. Um, so when I started in the field, we were, yes, treating some with cobalt and also with accelerators. Um, when I went into treatment planning uh, specifically, we were using the old computers. We were doing the wire contours, you know, by hand, the whole deal, um, you know, doing 2D planning, which hopefully uh, some of the guys watching know about that. Um, you know, putting some beams on and, um, you know, maybe getting some isodoses out, hopefully, um, you know, the, the old printers everybody loved because they had the little, uh, you know, colors that went back and forth, so everybody liked to watch those. So, you know, we didn't do a lot of imaging. We did, at that time, imaging was done, uh, you know, you did the simulator with the KV, and then when you were on the machine, you did MV. Um, I've told a lot of people that you had to kind of lean back and squint when you were looking at MV images, because it's very hard to see any anatomy. We mostly used bony anatomy as our landmarks. Right. Um, you know, those were uh, kind of the, and those guys, it wasn't that long ago. It was about 20 years ago or so. So it wasn't like, oh, it was 1950. I mean, it was it was that recent. So, you know, what I say about our profession is we're always bumping up against the technology. You know, now we're able to do uh, 3D. We're able to do CT SIM, uh, doing CT scans to localize where we're treating. Um, we're not using bony anatomy as much. We have KB imaging on our machines. We have, uh, you know, the ability to do uh, cone being CT, we're starting to do MRI. So these are tools that I think we are really evolving into learning how to use them to their maximum. I mean, we that's the way we've always been. And I think as a profession, whether we're in uh, diagnostic or, or in therapy, we've got to think of it that way, that we are bumping up against technology always, and we're learning to use these tools. So it's been pretty awesome. I always tell people going into this profession, therapy and dosimetry, you have got to love change. If you do not love change, this is not going to be the right fit for you. Um, but that's kind of where our history has gone. You know, now we have report and verify. I know you were talking about we just set it up and, you know, shot and hopefully we were close enough. We used larger margins, but now, um, you know, we are able to do so much better imaging, so much better planning, um, you know, and that's not even talking about going into IMRT and VMAT for therapy when we're doing those kind of plans. Those have been maybe the last 10 years that that kind of technology has come out. So I think, you know, Things have changed a lot um, just over the last 20 years or so, 30 years even, and, and they're tools, and I think they're exciting, and um, so I'm very excited about how this profession has evolved, and hopefully everybody out there is as well. So you mentioned um, cobalt, you know, starting with cobalt and they kind of set up and shoot and then, you know, maybe like four filled box. Now we're to IMRT or like you said, VMAT or and all the onboard imaging. And so Dr. Getch, I'll ask you maybe a little bit on the diagnostic side. Is that the equivalent of, you know, a PHS as opposed to you know, ultimately get to a CT or an MRI or some of these new functional things. What, what's been that leap in diagnostic that we've seen in radiation therapy? I think I'm actually 
going over notes for a, a course in diagnostic imaging. I'm going to teach, teach radiation therapy students. So for the last few weeks on house arrest, I've been doing that. Everything started with film. Uh, the first person to actually expose x-ray film was Renkin. In his studio, he happened to have film. He exposed film. And there's a classic photograph of his wife's hand showing her fingers and a, her big ring. She was aghast by it because it looked like a corpse. She said, I have seen my own death. She wasn't very fond of it. But everything was based on film. And then the various additions like scatter screens and intensifying screens. I was in radiation therapy when every radiation therapy image was a 14 by 17. You do one port film a week. And that was supposed to tell you how the patient's field was being treated for a very, very long time. I remember going into the Radiological Society of North America, don't know exactly what year, would have been late 1980s, early 1990s, and somebody had an electronic imaging device that they were experimentally trying with radiation therapy. And they did something shocking. They took a picture of the field every day, and then they made a little movie. And I just sat there and looked at that like, oh my gosh, look at that. It was just moving everywhere. It was hopping around like a bunny rabbit. But this is what we're doing in radiation therapy. All these years, it actually is kind of funny. I know the residents at UCLA would get a, a film, and if they didn't like the film, they'd take more and more and more until they got a trophy level film. Then they would sign their name and say, see, this is what we did. Well, it's not really true. I think a layer of film has been peeled back for our eyes with onboard imaging. Once you got the point where you could get electronic imaging, you could do it in real time. I mean, think about the patient sitting on the table, you take a film, you go down the hall, you wait in line at the processing machine, two and a half minutes to get through the processor, then go and show it to the doctor, then come back. By that point, the patient's already gotten up, had a cup of coffee, gone to the bathroom. You know, they're not in the same place. This is ridiculous. But now you can see what you're looking at instantly. The next, I think the next major revolution was my friend Rock Mackey. The University of Wisconsin with tomotherapy, where he created the tomo scan. And every day, 100% of all patients were scanned and compared to a CT scan. Um, that's the new state of the art. So I wanted to ask you, since you're since you um, talk so much about onboard imaging, um, one because we have a wide variety of modalities that tune into these shows. If you'll just give a very brief des description of what, what we mean, we know what onboard imaging means, but make sure that our CT folks and our MRI folks and, you know, for Nuke Med, make sure they understand what onboard imaging means. And then I want to kind of dip my toes into their water a little bit, because if we're talking about AI, if we're talking about artificial intelligence, what about this new adaptive treatment? This where it's adapting based on this onboard imaging, Dr. Getz. So if you don't mind, just explain a little bit about onboard imaging, and then let's all of us talk about adaptive treatment uh, planning and then treatment delivery. Well, I think the first step was uh, radiation therapy linear accelerators that had their own imaging capability. Uh, the simplest thing is to take whatever the energy of the beam is, which is high therapy energy, just simply have a device that images with that. Unfortunately, that's all Compton effect. There's not much photoelectric effect. They don't look very good. So some began to add a separate KV imager so that it's more in the diagnostic imaging range that we're all used to. And the next step up was either with a megavoltage therapy level or the kilovoltage actually create what they call a cone beam CT. So we do sort of a poor man's CT scan. Typically that isn't done every day, but it's done fairly often. Now, we've, by this point, we've entered the three-dimensional realm. You're matching the patient's anatomy in three dimensions. So that's happening now routinely. Uh, most of the big modern linear accelerators have, you can have snapshots, you can have cone beam CT with megavoltage, cone beam CT with kilovoltage. The next two levels up that are coming right now, we now have MRI Linux that have an MRI built into them. It's on all the time. Every day, every patient gets an MRI scan. 
then there's one more that's just now approved by the FDA, just as we film this, the first one has been sold to Stanford called the Reflection. And that's a PET scanner, PET CT and linear accelerator. So every possible imaging modality is right in the radiation therapy treatment room. All broken down therapy physicists like me who thought we got away from all that diagnostic stuff. Well, it's coming back to haunt us. So this is the perfect time to ask Melanie, with all of these modalities overlapping, um, in the U.S., we've kind of stuck to pathways towards our terminal. You're, you are a radiation therapist, or you are nuke med, or you, you know, CT or MRI. Whereas I know internationally, they have more of a broad, you're a radiographer, and you have a little bit of everything, but specialize usually one way or the other. So educationally, how do you handle needing to know so many modalities to do your primary job? So you're right. Yes, um, it started out, and even in our profession here in the U.S., we started it out as uh, X-ray. Um, I know before that it was nurses that were therapists, and then you know it was X-ray techs that moved into therapy, right? And then moved, you know, into the clinic. So they specialized and moved into dosimetry, the planning piece, which would just like a progression in their um, career. So um, you know things have changed a lot. Um, we are, I will tell you what we are doing as educators, we are facing a dilemma because we are adding more and more to our education uh, because we have to teach all these things. So we're adding more and more, we're adding more of the image guided radiation therapy to the therapy programs. Um, you know, we're going to have to, we teach MRI, we teach CT, but not to the point that you're able to do that as a diagnostic level. Um, I think that we're going to have to pump that up. And I think that what's going to happen is that more of the um, people in diagnostic and therapy, we may be going back around, guys. We may be seeing that pendulum swing back to where we wear multiple hats. We have no choice. Um, there was an institution that uh, discussed, and I don't know where that ended up, but um, it for their therapists, they talked about having them get their MRI uh, certification so that you would get, go back as a therapist and you would get your MRI, you know, as a diagnostic level MRI tech. Um, I don't think that really is how the profession is going to go. I think we're going to have to learn to wear multiple hats. Uh, Dr. Getch may have a different opinion about that, but it, it is, you know, and I've talked with other educators, it is hard to figure out where do you keep adding and where do you where do you take away? Because then your program is going to become so complex and long that you're never going to get people out in the clinic. Um, one of my questions is always, do we still need to worry about teaching COBOL? You know, I mean, we do have gamma knife, but do we need to worry about teaching time? You know, how when we first started in the field years ago, we did time for treatment. You know, do we still need to teach those calculations? Can that fall off of our curriculum? Where, where can we adjust all that? So, it, it's been a dilemma. It's been hard, and I will not say that I have all the answers, but it's something that definitely educators are wrestling with, is figuring out how best to navigate that because the technology is popping out there so quickly. Um, it's exciting, but it is, yeah, it is uh, tough to navigate. Well, I love that we have these conversations because, like you said, you don't have all the answers. Nobody else has all the answers, but at least we get to share ideas and, and talk about these sort of things. So, Dr. Getch, Melanie's built us all up to where now we need to know a little bit about everything. How can our developments in computers, our developments in all of the, you know, the software and hardware, how does that help us? So maybe the first question would be, what's the definition of artificial intelligence and how can we let that intelligence help us as we need to know so many more things? Well, the, the term artificial intelligence was coined back 1956. So the idea goes back a long way. 1956 is also, as far as I can tell, the oldest radiation therapy paper that described use of electronic devices, in other words, computers, to do that. In those days, I remember growing up in St. Louis, there were maybe three or four computers in the city of St. Louis. Washington University had a computer the size of a large room, and they allowed various hospitals to send in programs and overnight they would do some calculations. Strangely, the other really big computing center in town was my father's office. He, he was chairman of the board of Doan Agricultural Services 
And part of what they did was agricultural forecasting, much like weather forecasting. So they would try to project what was going to happen in the entire country and what the price of soybeans was going to be in 12 months. So they used huge computers to try to do that. Well, I think the next step after the programmable computer, which does the same thing sort of over and over again, was people began to wonder and science fiction authors like Isaac Asimov began to think about, well, maybe this computer is going to take over the world. There was a classic, uh, very fortunate uh, situation in 1952, one of the first IBM computers in real time projected the winner of the presidential election between Dwight Eisenhower and, and uh, I think it was uh, Stevenson, Adelaide Stevenson, by one hour after the polls closed to correctly forecast that Eisenhower was going to win, which most people thought, that it also predicted the number of electoral college votes very accurately, then about two or 3%. So at that point, people started saying, well, gee, these computers are smarter than we are. They're gonna take over the whole world. So we've been waiting for these computers to come alive, to talk to us. Now there are natural language programs and then move on relentlessly. The first thing they really did was help in, in applications like uh, looking at diagnostic scans. Uh, University of Chicago, Cuneo Doi, and uh, others there at, at, that, at that institution actually patented and released software to overread mammography. And now that's pretty much everywhere. So diagnostic radiologists, some of them are fearful that their, their job will be taken by these things. When it comes into the field of radiation therapy, the newest wrinkle is um, young man at John Moore's Cancer Center, Kevin Moore is his name, no relation to the rich man who endowed it. But he started talking about something called knowledge-based planning. In fact, he went back to that same Washington University in St. Louis when he was a resident and looked at radiation therapy treatment plans that dosimetrists had planned and even used, came up with a whole new um, assays for what a good plan was and what a bad plan was, and analyzed a whole huge batch of them and found some were very good, most were in the middle, and some were not so good at all. He said, how can I create a system so that every plan is the best plan that we have? And that's now been commercialized. Uh, Varian and Electa are offering this software. So I just had a talk, uh, a meeting earlier this year, someone from UC San Diego about five different online treatment plans using the Varian software for prostates. And she did a, a study with like 50 cases to look at how well they did, and how some did better at one thing, maybe one was better at rectal sparing, one was better at covering a target. So even among the knowledge-based plans, they don't all come up to the same answer at the same time. This is a highly rapidly evolving situation. So Melanie, you mentioned, or speaking of treatment plans, since um, Dr. Getch was talking about the different softwares that have these knowledge-based treatment plans where they kind of pull from their library of ideas to create the best plan. But you talked earlier about how plans used to be done with solder wire or plaster of Paris, or how has that evolved from the, you know, where you had to digitize things on the, on the big paper and, and make the plan? How has that evolved into this knowledge base where the computer itself pulls the best of every plan that it can find to develop what it believes to be the most accurate? So that is, um, I think, you know, AI and uh, also I've uh, seen it called in some of the articles machine learning. So we are starting to do, like you said, adaptive planning where we're taking um, the computer learns essentially. So we are as the person doing the plan or the person doing the treatment, we're taking that information and we're processing it. There have been, there was a study that came out, um, Reed Thompson and his group in 2018, talking about, um, and actually it's in the Green Journal, and he talks very specifically about what he's found with AI. And what he's found is that most of the treatment planning computers and systems that we have for this planning anymore is doing uh, segmentation, which uh, most people know is contouring, drawing in the, the critical structures, drawing in where we don't want the radiation dose to go. So that's where we've kind of evolved with um, 
you know, AI, that's kind of where we've started. Most people in the clinic, I think most dosimetrists in particular would find that to be a useful tool. So we're happy as long as it's in that little box, right? It's doing our segmentation, you know, get our contours for us. We, we get worn out from doing that anyway. Um, but also it's doing things like now learning to create the best plan like Dr. Getch mentioned so that we're seeing, okay, well, we put that, that information is put in from the physician's prescription and then the computer is doing the plan or evaluating the plan, which is where we started with computers, evaluating the plan to tell us if it was a good plan or not. And so that dose optimization piece of it, um, Thompson was talking about that, that we're starting to do more and more of that. And I think that some of that is starting to make people in particular in our profession a little nervous just because they're afraid that then they're not going to have a job doing this anymore. Um, the other areas that uh, Thompson talked about have to do with QA, which uh, Dr. Getch might can uh, discuss a little bit, but the, the actual system, the linear accelerators, the machines are doing the QA and spitting out information that, you know, it would take hours for a physicist to do or hours for a dosimetrist to do the QA. Um, the other thing that he talked about is starting to develop with AI and machine learning is doing um, clinical decision support and, and also looking at outcomes on patients and predicting, you know, you were talking about Dr. Getch, how it was, the computer was predicting who was going to win and what the electoral votes were going to be for Eisenhower. Now we're looking at especially big data and we're starting to look specifically at, you know, what might be the outcome for these patients. So it is starting to give us decision trees. It's starting to give us that kind of information. Um, we are able because of that to, I think, more customize our treatment. So instead of, you know, one size fits all for fill box, uh, you know, that we did for so long for prostate cancer patients, just, you know, big, huge fields, we're now more able to customize our treatment for a patient based on what their diagnosis is and, you know, their outcome. And, you know, that I think to people is a little bit scary. And, um, you know, they worry that maybe we're going to to be taken over by this technology. But I think one thing that Thompson said, and I really am a fan if you get the opportunity, it's actually uh, this particular article that I'm referring to is uh, open access through the Green Journal, Estro. And if you get a chance to look at it, one of the things that he says in there that I think is very profound is that we have to, as a profession, whether it's radiation oncology, and he specifically talks about radiation oncology, but even in radiology, we have to do research to get to the point that we know how to use this technology as a tool. And I um, always encourage people in the profession to remember, this is a tool. And um, it's something that you want to, I think, take hold of and for your patients, for your patients, you know, you want to learn to use this and use it as a tool, as opposed to thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to take over my job if, it, if it's doing uh, machine learning and, and putting out better plans. Um, I think we have to, and I've talked to a lot of people in the profession about AI because there is a lot of concern and fear. I think that we have to learn how to evaluate that information. I know that AI is learning to evaluate, but we have to learn how to use it as a tool and, you know, make sure that we know that we're doing the best treatment for patients. I, I just don't think fear has a place in all of this. Um, I think that excitement has a place in all of this and, and interest. And, you know, that, that is the way we as a profession, I believe, should look at it. And I like I, I, I like that point. And we'll try to find a link to that Green Journal article so that we can post it um, when we post this um, recording so that people can go look at that if they want to, because I think that's important to remember as well that you can't you, you have to be knowledge knowledgeable. You have to be informed. Um, you know, you kind of have to take care of yourself as a professional in that you kind of understand, you know, that you do your best to understand these things that are coming along, because, like you said, fear has no place. As we, as we change and move and grow. Um, Dr. Getch, you mentioned earlier that one of the very first applications was the overreading of mammograms. And then here in this current crisis, um, we're looking at CT scans that'll pick up on respiratory viruses and things like that. So on, the, on that side, what role does AI play in, in overreading a mammogram or how does it work in that it's specifically looking at 
um, even CT, low dose CT scanning for lung cancer. How, how, does this, how does the CT work? How does the AI part work so that you know what you're looking for, whether it's that you know, lung cancer or the breast cancer or a respiratory virus? I think what the whole point of artificial intelligence is, is that it's something that has a learning algorithm. You start off by getting maybe a thousand mammograms that have been read out and it's agreed to and biopsies have been taken and you know exactly what the mammogram meant ultimately. Then you teach the machine, you say, okay, here's this, here's this, here's this. Don't worry about this kind of thing, don't worry about that. You show it as many cases as you can. It begins to look for patterns. Ultimately, sometimes the student exceeds the teacher. It begins to be able to see things that maybe the human eye doesn't pick up. So typically in diagnostic radiology, MAMO or uh, chest CT for look at lung cancers. The radiologist does the first pass. On a second pass, the machine language or the machine uh, program comes through and looks at it and points out additional areas. Well, you might want to look at this. I mean, this goes back many years when I used to go out with a girl who was uh, head of radiology in a department. She was a radiation, radiological technologist. So when you see young doctors, you look at something and you notice as you both look at this film, there new guy's missing something. What do you do? He says, well, you just played dumb and innocent. You point to this, say, gee, doctor, what, what's that little thing there? Does that look like a fractured leg? Oh yeah, Mary, right, that's what that is. Now, I think the AI has to be polite and respectful. There's egos involved here, at least on the part of the physicians. You know, hey doc, let's look at this little speck there. I'm kind of concerned. You want to have an extra good look at that? And maybe we'll go get an MRI scan. I think that's what's evolving in this kind of partnership. So Millie, I want to ask you, um, considering your work with radiation therapy students, um, dosimetry students, because you mentioned that some people are afraid of this technology because they're afraid it could take their job or they're afraid that they're afraid of the unknown, I think sometimes is what it is. There are lots of studies out right now. Um, you know, they looked at physician burnout in great detail and that the, these different AI capabilities could in some way reduce some of that burnout for physicians, um, whether it's in reading or you know, double checking or over reading or whatever that may be. How do you see that in the therapist or dosimetrist or radiographer or mammographer or new med tech? How do you see AI or some of these new capabilities reducing some of that stress? Going back to your earlier statement about not fearing these things, how can this be used as a tool for um, making you better at what you do or reducing your stress or, you know, just making it an easier workplace, one that you're more confident in. Right. I think that is we will hopefully see that stress level. There's, and you know this very well, because you've done research on it. Uh, there is a lot of burnout for therapists. There's also a lot of burnout for dosimetrists. So we lose that excitement and that interest because we're doing the TV's work. We're doing the work, especially, um, you know, when, uh, like I talked about earlier with dosages during this patient business, um, doing the QA. Most um, businesses are going to be really big fans of this from my conversations with them. And the reason is because they see it as a tool. I think that we should all see it that way to make our job a little bit less stressful and, you know, a little bit, whenever we use the word, but give us information that we can use without us sitting there for hours doing the work that's tedious. Um, that's a good idea. And I think that one thing, and I know I'm an educator, but I think one thing that we want to do is educate ourselves. I think our profession, um, throughout the years, we've done a lot of on-the-job training in all the different areas, whether it was x-ray therapy or dispensary. There was a lot of on-the-job training that's happened, so now we're starting to formalize Melanie, I can't hear you anymore. Dr. Getch, can you hear Melanie? No, I think we may have lost her here. I think she, yeah, I think um, we're having a little bit of difficulty there. So I, while we're waiting on um, her, there you go. Hey, you're back. 
We lost you for a minute, Melanie. Can you hear us now? So Dr. Gage, I'm going to ask you, since Melanie was kind of talking about moving towards the future um, in your presentation that you've done before, you mentioned moving really far ahead and some of that was self-driving vehicles and some of these other things that sound a little crazy to us. What do you think sounds a little crazy in medicine? What do you think as for radiation therapy or for radiography? Where do you, where do, what do you think the future holds and where do you think we could go with this? One of the things we haven't seen much of in medicine is robots. Robots are everywhere. Um, it appears that self-driving trucks are going to take over from long-range truck drivers. Millions of Americans will be unemployed because these long-distance trucks will drive themselves from point A to point B. Eventually, maybe we'll all be in a self-driving car, which brings up enormous number of questions. But I think it's also going to be important in medicine. If you look at Japan, it's a nation that um, their birth rate has fallen very, very, very low. It's true in Russia, it's true in Korea and other nations. By the end of this century, their population will be half what it is, and it will be very, very, very elderly. So it's not a surprise they're working on robots. I think they envision, envision robots taking care of people, basically being sort of like nurses or at least practical nurses. What that means in radiation therapy, I'm not quite sure. Um, maybe a robot could stay in the room with the patient while they're being treated and hold their hand because a robot wouldn't care. You know, there's no, no laws protecting radiation therapy or radiation exposure to a robot. But all this sort of stuff is going to happen. Part of the problem in this whole field now is I think we're entering the era of perhaps too much knowledge. We talked about MRI Linux. MRI is sort of the state of the art. It's the best imaging technique that we know of now. And if every day you produce a new MRI and find out that it looks quite different from the one that was done at the time of simulation, computers can help you. They can morph all of the structures that you spent so much time outlining. They can change it around to the new one and then on the fly come up with a new treatment plan. I think that's what some of these MRI Linux will do. It makes the treatments very lengthy. You might be on the table an hour and a half or two hours. Yeah. I don't think you're going to get reimbursed for replanting 25 times, but that's that's the era we're going into. Uh, there's a lot of questions, more questions than answers. So, Melanie, since we lost you just a little bit there, and you were talking about. Um, burnout and how to move forward positively this kind of will will let you end this up here um kind of teetering off of what dr what dr getz just said um and how some people may be afraid to move forward what what ideas can you give us to to look at this technology to learn about it and then to embrace the parts we need to embrace but also maybe question some of the things we need to question You're right, it is important to question, and um, I'll give you an example, is um, especially in the um, arena, you know, about New York Times article from 10 and what happened there, and what typically happened, if you look at the, if you read through that article, there was a glitch in the system, and the file was taken correctly for the MLCs. So, it was, you know, the problem downstream was that there was a technology. He saw the technology. So I think that should be a material for us as we move forward to use it as a tool, but still thinking about what's going on and So Dr. Gatch, I'm gonna let you um, have the last word here. Uh, Melanie said that we should use this as a tool, that we should learn as much as we can and kind of embrace things, um, question some things if we need to. But if you could just give us maybe your best advice moving forward or um, how you think clinicians should work with, with this new technology. I think you have to embrace change. As Melanie said, don't fear change. I think the new knowledge-based planning is certainly excellent. I have friends that are that are making sort of automated QA, modern linear accelerator with 
10 or 12 different energies. Physicists can spend five or six hours a week just doing QA on a Linux. Now there's automated software and hardware that can sort of do a lot of that all by itself and just provide a printout when it's done. Next thing I think would be quite interesting, we're not quite there yet, but there are online imaging and dose measuring devices. I know uh, years ago, my friend at Children's Hospital Los Angeles had one. Every day would measure the dose delivered by every person that was, that was treated and see if there are any variances from the actual delivered dose versus the planned dose and find out why. Perhaps we'll get to a live time where as the dose is coming in, if something goes wrong, it will halt treatment so that it will physically prevent any, any errors from happening. I think that would be wonderful. Well, I agree with you. And I think um, showing some of our technical difficulties today with uh, Melanie having some issues out there from, from her home base, um, you know, is that we need to embrace technology because if not, we wouldn't be able to do this and share this information. But, you know, kind of be cognizant of the things, be educated enough that you can, you know, recognize when things aren't going exactly like they should and be able to adapt. So I appreciate it, Dr. Getch. I really have enjoyed having you on and I look forward. I, hey, I often tell people that your podcast on Chernobyl and everybody can go back and look that one up because it's still out there. That was the most popular podcast I ever did. So congrats on being number one, Dr. Getch. <laughs> and I just had a wildfire there the other day. They were afraid it was going to go and burn what had already been ruined. So it's not over <laughs> so thanks a whole bunch and we'll get back together soon. All right. Take care. Have a great day.